It is good to see you all out on what has turned out to be an amazing uh, Sunday afternoon. I hope you were able to get out and enjoy the record-breaking temperatures. I love that in the winter when they say record-breaking temperatures. I'm not too fond of it in the summer when they say that, but in the winter it is wonderful to have those warmer temperatures, and I hope you're able to enjoy that uh, this evening. Tonight we do continue in our study on the foundations. Uh, Tonight's sermon is entitled Preparing to Disciple, and as I reflected on this, this is kind of the wrap-up sermon of what we started actually going all the way back to New Year's and launching out into what should we do to prepare for the new generation that is coming onto the scene. And I spoke this morning of the discipleship, as it were, of my grandparents as I would sit around the breakfast nook and they would instruct and teach me devotions, a habit of devotions, a practice of devotions, but then they would also instruct and teach not only the practice but the deep theology of eschatology there around the breakfast nook. But it, I also had considerable time. My grandfather had been a pastor years before I had come onto the scene and had long since retired from that ministry. And I remember, in essence, walking everywhere with him. One of the ideas that I thought of this past week was my grandfather always had immaculate hair. That was something that was just his character. It was uh, thick and uh, white, gleaming white, but very distinguished. I don't know why it is that certain gentlemen just have that white, distinguished hair, but my grandfather certainly had it, and I hope one day uh, to follow in that, those footsteps. But I remember uh, we would get into my grandfather's uh, Monte Carlo, one of the older Monte Carlos, the long kind of boat kind of cars, and there was no buckle in the middle seat, but the seat rest would come down between the driver and the passenger, and I would sit up as a little guy, I would sit up on that seat rest, and uh, it was only a two-door car, so you, you had to lay the seat forward to get into the back, and I was so happy just to sit in the front seat with granddad on the way to the barber. That's where we would always go, it seemed like. I don't know why, but maybe if you have immaculate, distinguished hair, that's where you go all the time. I, I'm not sure. But I remember the smell of the hair tonic, that when I would go to the barber, they would set me up into the chair, and, and they would do everything that they did to my grandfather's hair, they would do to my hair, and they would take the hair tonic, and they would slop it onto my hair, and smooth it out, and slick it out. I don't remember what my hair looked like at all, but I remember following in the footsteps of my grandfather. And I remember the feeling of that as we learned many kinds of things, or I learned many kinds of things when I was with him. He was always a techie, and so one of the things that I learned is uh, the bag phone. You remember the bag phones? Uh, these weren't necessarily cell phones. They were like cell phones with a suitcase with them. <laughs> and you would take those around. And I remember I was getting to be into my early teen years when the bag phones came out, and my grandfather had one, and he would teach me and instruct me on the proper use of a car phone, all the way there. Just little principles of daily walking together, from haircut to car phone to the right way to cut the grass. All of these elements my grandfather taught me. Tonight, we move into this idea that biblical discipleship requires diligence and intentionality on the part of the discipler. I praise the Lord that my grandfather didn't just say, 
I'm going to go off to the barber. You guys do what you're going to do here at the house. Don't, don't eat too much. Don't pester grandma too much. I'll be back after a little while. I'm glad that my grandfather said, come along with me to the barber. I never would have had the barbershop experience without my grandfather doing that. And I never would have had those precious moments of sitting up in the middle, which you can't do anyway today, but in the middle seat, in the, the armrest seat with my grandfather and really acting as co-pilot. And I appreciate those days so much as I reflect back on them, but it required intentionality and it required diligence. I'm sure going to the barber with my grandfather was a lot more fun for me than it was for him. As uh, here is this little guy toddling along with him trying to figure out all of life and all of the challenges of life and he intentionally taking the time to be there. I remember one story as we're thinking through this as well. I was, my grandparents owned a retirement facility and I remember going to the dairy where just down the road from them where we had to pick up milk and one of those painful experiences that I learned a lot from was carrying the milk across the street from that same Monte Carlo, walking across the street and I was maybe 10 years old and I had four gallons of milk in two hands. By the time I made it to the retirement home across the street, I had two gallons of milk in two hands. I dropped two along the way, and there was an expensive, at least at the time in my imagination, an expensive lesson learned, but also the gracious compassion of my grandfather intentionally discipling me even through those, those moments, those times. That's where we're looking into this evening is these kinds of elements. Biblical, biblically effective discipleship requires diligence and intentionality on the part of the discipler. So tonight we're looking into the heart of the discipler. The one who's training another. And what is it that you need to have in order to disciple? Let us ask the Lord's blessing as we get into this most important theme tonight. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to dig into your word. This is a theme in which it's not just a theme for good Christian practice. This is commanded of us as believers to disciple others, to teach them, to observe all that Christ has commanded as we wait for Christ's return. Lord, we praise you that not only... Do we have this command, but we have the enablement of the Spirit of God who assists us in discipling other believers. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us tonight as we understand these truths of what it means to practically prepare for discipleship. Lord, I ask that if there's no one in our life that we are currently discipling, that you would change that for us quickly. That we would be diligent in finding another to disciple, but we understand that there's some steps that need to be taken before that. So I pray that you would help us to observe these five truths that we have before us tonight and that your name would be glorified in them. Lord, we thank you where we've been in our study and we anticipate now putting this into practice in the coming days and we ask your blessing as we do so. We ask your mercy and your grace to be demonstrated that you alone would be glorified in it. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for the time we could spend in your word tonight and we ask your blessing upon it. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We spent the last few weeks seeking to understand the command to make disciples. And so really going back for messages. So if you haven't heard all of them, I would encourage you to go back and pick up some of those, especially last week as we look into Barnabas and Saul and the relationship that existed there. I told my Sunday school class this morning to do that. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that message because it is so critically important for us to see it lived out, to see not just definitions and theory of discipleship, but actual physical discipleship. 
Discipleship is required. It is not optional. It is not which you can say, well, this is a a good part of the Christian life. I'm going to take it or leave it. There will be a day where you will be judged on your faithfulness to the commands that Christ gave to his disciples to go, therefore, to make disciples and to train them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Those two form the Great Commission, and we have the responsibility to be actively at work and doing the work of discipleship. Now, some will be better disciplers than others. It's not a quantity versus quality element. This is found, are you faithful in obeying the Lord? That is why we want to spend time on it. It is also necessary as we prepare for Generation Beta, assuming that the Lord tarries until 2025, this generation to be born that is coming needs you to be discipling the next ones. They need you to participate in the work of training godliness to the next generation. And so we've covered all of these, and we've looked into several passages in doing so, but tonight we're going to look into several more as we begin to build on what we have already established in recent weeks. So we've looked into Barnabas and Saul. We've provided some definition. We understand the call, the necessity of doing discipleship. Tonight, we're going to understand the practice of it. What does it look like to live it out on a day-to-day basis? Your outline is five simple points that I've given and hopefully some space there for you to write what the Lord is impressing upon your heart. These are five principles of what is necessary for the discipler to begin the process of discipleship. Discipleship is not all that complicated, but it requires intentionality. It requires diligence, and we're going to focus on that diligence here tonight, along with a bit of that intentionality. When we are discipling, we must be those who are pointing to Christ. And so therefore, the disciple is being pointed to Christ. We ourselves are pointed to Christ in order to point others to Christ. And so we're going to begin in Romans chapter 8. And I'll warn you, we're going to be in several passages tonight, picking up some themes that we have developed over the recent weeks. So these are passages we're familiar with, passages largely that we've been to over the last few weeks. We're just recapping some of them And we're going to start in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, where we really must understand, because it builds one onto the other, we really must understand who we are. In order to point to Christ, we have to understand who you are in Christ. And so chapter 6 in the book of Romans, beginning in verse 8, the scripture says this, now if we had died with Christ, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we have also, will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we are to be pointing to Christ through our walk with Christ, we have to start at this very critical juncture. Since the disciple is pointing to Christ, they should have the same mind as Christ. And that is dead to sin and alive to God. We're going to build off of this theme, but there becomes a very clear theme that it is not enough for the Christian to say they have discipled someone, just to say that they've discipled somebody. Say, well, they're, they're more faithful in church attendance. That's not discipleship. That's important. We want to bring them along and help them attend more faithfully. 
But if it's only for the sake of attending the church, then as soon as the church offends them or somebody in the church offends them, they will stop attending the church. So it's not discipleship, although it's potentially an element of it. We are not pointing people to Christianity. While it is necessary to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not pointing them to act like and behave like other Christians, to dress like other Christians, to talk the language of other Christians. That is also not discipleship. It happens naturally, and it is important as you participate in the body of Christ, but that in and of itself is not discipleship. We must be those who have the same mind as Christ. We must be those who are pointed to Christ. Paul here in Romans chapter 6 verses 8 through 11 reminds us that while we had at one time been dead in our sins and our trespasses, because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are now made alive with Christ and are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but alive to Christ. And so therefore, if we are alive to Christ, we're not acting like religious people. We're acting like followers of Christ. And therefore, we must understand we're being pointed to Christ. It is not just simply that we are followers in the sense of attending church and placating the conscience about being in the body of Christ, whether that be twice a year or many times a year. We are those who have the same mind as Christ. And so therefore, as Paul says in verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ in or alive to God, rather, in Christ Jesus. The necessity is that you and I do not remain where we are. We are constantly pointing ourselves, allowing the Word of God to point to us, and allowing others to point us to Christ. Be, because we are dead to sin. Paul will pick up on this idea. I wanted us to understand it here, but turn also in Colossians, as we're going to spend a little more time on this theme Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Notice what Paul says here in this text. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Scripture then, there says, if, you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What an interesting statement, especially as we recognize where Paul was going in Romans chapter 6. In Colossians, he kind of builds off of this theme that he started there. In Colossians, or rather in Romans chapter 6, he's been highlighting sanctification and growing in Christ, becoming more and more Christ-like. Paul takes that same theme, and in the book of Colossians, he's reminding the believer to set their mind not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. Not on the things that are temporal, but on the things that are eternal. Much of the discipleship process points a believer to putting off the old self, to have a heavenly mindset. And perhaps you've heard the phrase that they are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And the answer to that is there's no such thing. Now you may have your head in the clouds, that's a whole different thing. What Paul is addressing here is you are to be heavenly minded to set your mind on the things that are above. See life as God sees life. See others as God sees them. See sin as God sees sin. 
the believers to set their minds on things above. There are times when discipleship includes hard-to-share instructions. In fact, if we go through chapter 3, you'll notice in in verse 5 of this verse, there's a lot of difficult things that you're going to have to deal with in a sin-stained world. Notice just this brief list. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Are those ever easy questions to have or answers to give to somebody with those questions? You want that to be tested, talk to somebody in the LGBTQAI community who would certainly fit into this category. Are those easy questions to ask and to answer? But continue on down, notice Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and following, where Paul says this, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly, uh, excuse me, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul has given a list of the putting off, and now he says put on. And the put on list is just as difficult as the put off list. How easy is it to disciple somebody into the truths of not complaining against somebody else? Have you ever been in that discipleship relationship with somebody and they're constantly complaining about other people? Is that not a difficult conversation to have with them? Go up just a little bit from there and we are to put on holiness, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If we are to disciple another one into the things of Christ, we ourselves must be pointed to Christ, and these things should be true of us. So the question is, in sober self-assessment, are these things true of you? In greater sober self-assessment, these things do not give you license to not disciple. Well, they're not true of me, so dodge that discipleship bullet. I don't need to do it. No, 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 no. You're still going to be judged on faithfulness to the command to make disciples. So, we must be those who are pointing each other to this kind of walk in Christ. Pointing to Christ. If you walk together in discipleship, these matters will come up. And they may be uncomfortable to discuss. One of the great joys of a discipler to a disciplee, one who's being discipled, is actually getting into these. And while they're awkward and clumsy to begin with, there is great joy when the disciple begins to figure out these truths in the body of Christ. They begin to understand meekness and humility. And you, as the discipler, understand it even more Because you are now living it out and you're seeing it 
firsthand. And as the teacher often learns more than the student, so too the mentor learns more than the disciple. And in this case, that would be true, pointing each other, sharpening each other towards the things of Christ. We are to put on the new. Several of these points that we will be studying this evening are interrelated. And it starts here, as a disciple of Christ, do not neglect putting on the new self. In fact, look in verses 16 and 17 of the same chapter, which we've already read a moment ago, but dig into them again. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You are commanded to make disciples, to point and aid another believer towards the things of godliness, to lead them towards those things. But do not neglect your own responsibility to allow the word of Christ to richly dwell in your hearts along the way. If you are a discipler, you yourself must be pointed to Christ. You're certainly going to point others to Christ. But if you are doing this out of your own capacities, and you believe that you have all kinds of vast resources of wisdom, then please stop Let the Word of God richly dwell in your heart and start discipling biblically. Paul wants us, through this example in Colossians, to not only grow richly in the Word of God, but to admonish and to strengthen the body of Christ as well. That is discipleship. That is living out the principles of discipleship, one to the other. And it may be a brief interaction, one together, And it's intentional, and there's a certain element of pointing to Christ, and it may be your only opportunity to do so. Then seize the opportunity as you allow the Word of God to richly dwell in you. Discipleship is difficult work. It is rewarding and painful all at the same time. There are days where you want to tear your hair out, and days that you want to cry in joy. It is exhausting work. It requires faithfulness. It is a work that is God's work. But uniquely and distinctly enough, God uses you to faithfully and consistently point to Christ and to point others to Christ, which builds builds to our second point. Pursue as a discipler. Not only are you pointed to Christ, but pursue godliness. This is essential in the process of discipleship. And in order to pursue holiness, or in order to pursue godliness, excuse me, you must pursue holiness. Let's start in the book of James. We're going to move from here in just a moment. But let's start in the book of James, chapter 1, where we spent some time a couple weeks ago. We're coming back to study the context a bit of what we studied. So James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, which we'll get to in just a moment. Closer related to the matter of holiness, the attitude of discipleship is also essential. So godliness, holiness, and the proper attitude all flow in together. Since Christ-likeness is our pursuit, both personally and in discipling one another, so personally and corporately, 
it is helpful to consider how Christ defined himself. So in a moment, we're going to go look into Matthew's gospel, and we're going to understand how Christ defined his own attitude in relationship to meekness and lowliness. As we look there in just a few moments, we have to stop here in Hebrew, in rather James chapter 1, in verses 19 and 20, and notice what James says. As he is instructing the church in a passage that we studied a couple weeks ago, as those who are doers and hearers also. When we studied the idea of how to listen to the message, we studied this passage. Now, jumping back to verse 19, the scripture says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Just a few weeks ago, as I mentioned, we were here looking into the context of this as we looked into verses 21 and following, especially verse 22 and 23. But James provides a list that defines the believer who is a hearer and a doer. It is one who pursues, as he says there at the very end of verse 21, meekness and the implanted word. Oftentimes we think of meekness as weakness, and we've probably heard that statement, that weakness, meekness is not weakness. In fact, that is clearly demonstrated here, as James is saying, that we are to stand firm to not only be hearers, not just passive, but active, hearers who are doers. And in order to be hearers who are doers, we have to allow the implanted word to have root in us with all meekness. And in order to do that, we have to live holy lives. Did you catch that as we move through 19 and 20? Notice again, 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and replace it, we could say, with meekness and the implanted word. There is a 180-degree shift. And so as we begin to understand how to disciple, you who are the potential discipler must pursue holiness so that you can pursue meekness, the implanted word. The believer is to put away all filthiness and to put on meekness. And this is the attitude that we see in Christ. We potentially may return back to James later on this evening, but I want us to turn into the Gospels and to Matthew, into a very unique passage. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and verses 28 and 29. This comes at a very interesting point in the ministry of Christ, because Within the next chapter, uh, just a few moments later in Matthew chapter 12, the religious leaders of Israel are going to say that the works of Christ are the works of Beelzebub, that he is doing the work of Satan, and the kingdom of heaven message will be pulled back temporarily. No longer will Christ be proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he'll begin teaching in parables and concealing the meaning of those parables to all but just a few, primarily his disciples. But in Matthew chapter 11, we have an interesting passage, as it is the only passage that I'm aware of, 
where Jesus provides detail of his own attitude. Where Jesus speaks to what's on the inside of Jesus. And he says this in verses 28 and 29 of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, meek would be another word, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As far as I am aware, this is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus says, this is Jesus on the inside. Meek and lowly. He says to those who are listening, take my yoke, learn from me. Follow these characteristics. Not because you are capable in the flesh, but in the pursuit and following after Christ, as a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit will aid and guide in that work, and you can have the same attitude as Christ. We are to seek becoming meek and lowly. I find it interesting that James then would pick up on that idea. And what does he tell us to do? Put off all filthiness and put on meekness. Put off all wickedness and vile filthiness and become meek and lowly of heart. It is important as we pursue godliness that we do not neglect not only the issue of holiness, but also that we do not neglect this instruction to avoid arrogance. It is quite easy for you to think back of all of those that you have discipled and, said, and say, look at what they are accomplishing. Look at what my disciples have been doing for the glory of God. I must be an excellent discipler. There is no room in the discipleship process for arrogance. And often, as I've discovered, the Lord will bring somebody in who's a more difficult case. It's more difficult to disciple and more challenging. Disciplers must not be arrogant. They must help their disciples as well to remove such attitudes in their lives. And you know this process. We see the same process as Young men, especially young men, begin to grow up. Uh, we start to see an arrogance in them the more information that they begin to glean. And they know more things, and so pretty soon they think they know all things. And they think they can live it all out. And as they seek to live it all out and all of these things, you find an arrogance in them. And that's hard to work through. But as they're maturing in Christ, you begin, and they're maturing physically, they experience more difficult things. And as they experience more difficult things, they begin to know that they know less than they thought that they knew. That same thing that we have physically happen in young people growing up to adulthood is the same thing we have in Christians growing up in maturity in Christ. Discipleship, as I said a couple weeks ago, is messy business. You're taking babies in Christ and you're growing them to adults in Christ. From the milk of the Word of God that you heat up in the microwave quickly, to the full, solid meals, which take much longer to prepare, much longer to eat and to digest. And so we're growing from babies to adults in the Christian walk. And that is messy. And it's difficult. 
But it is essential that the discipler pursue godliness in the midst of those discipleship moments. Point to Christ, be pointed to Christ, pursue godliness, and for yourself, continue to practice faithful growth. Remember, these are just quick, isolated truths of discipleship. You, yourself, must have these things as evident in your life to be faithful and to be biblically approved to be a discipler. Pointing to Christ, you being pointed to Christ, you pursuing godliness, and you pursuing a faithful growth, the practice of faithful growth. This may surprise you, but it should not surprise you. I don't think it will. But you are not yet done growing in Christ. As long as you have breath, you're still growing in Christ. I remember walking into one of my professors who uh, was quite aged, and I walked into his office one day. I had a question on a test or something that was coming up at Calvary, and, and I, I had my, my binder open. That was before we had computers that were readily available. I had my binder open. I walk into his office, and uh, hey, professor, I've got a question here. And he goes, hang on, hang on. And he picks up his Bible, and he goes, I never knew this. Uh, what a great statement for a man of God who's known the Lord for a long, 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 long time, at least in my impression. And he takes up his Bible and he says, I never knew this. And he read it. And he said, did you know that? I said, I, I don't think I knew that. And he said, well, you do now. <laughs> and you're years ahead of me. And he read through that text, I forgot to ask the question that I came into his office to ask because I was so taken back by him, a student of the Word of God his entire life, saying, I never knew this. You, beloved, are not done growing. So don't stop. Don't stop. Don't coast. Continue to practice faithful growth. Turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. This is a passage that our Awana kids learn. It's one that's familiar. In fact, it's where we get our word Awana from, approved workmen who are not ashamed. As we dig into 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, notice this, where Scripture says, Do your best to approve, do your best to present yourself. To God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's fascinating to me that Awana has been built on these elements where we are to be those who present ourselves approved workmen unto God. So from very early on, at least in our church, from childhood, you are taught the principles of growing constantly to adulthood. Paul is instructing his protege to practice, his protege Timothy, to practice faithfully handling God's Word. It is not something that comes natural to us. It is not something that we just readily accept. The day you come to know Christ as Savior, you just accept all that there is in Christendom and, and you're good from then on out. In fact, one of the four pillars of our presuppositions, if you've 
attended one of our adult Bible fellowship classes that's highlighted this. One of the uh, basic components of our presupposition is natural man's incapacity to comprehend God's revelation. We have a natural, in the natural man, we have an incapacity to understand God's word. We need the help of the Spirit of God to understand God's word. And so there is a process by which we continue to grow in our dependency upon the Holy Spirit to know His Word more and more faithfully. And we want to be accurately handling the Word of Truth. This is not something that is just spoken by the preacher and we think, oh, he's got it all together. This is something that Paul says to Timothy, do your best, work at, be consistent at accurately handling the Word of Truth. When you're in your devotions, accurately handle the Word of Truth. Don't just do the devotions that make you feel good. Do the devotions that will deal with the rawness of your fleshliness and cause you to put off flesh and to put on Christ. Let us be those who are diligent to handle faithfully the Word of God. A faithful discipler will not only accurately handle the Word of God, they will teach others to accurately handle the Word of God. And that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.2. That these things are to be trained. He says uh, this, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We studied this last week briefly as we were drawing to a close, as we looked at Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, having discipled Paul, who was then Saul, eventually Saul becomes Paul, and instead of Barnabas and Saul, you hear of Paul and Barnabas. Their roles changed, that reversed. And Paul would go on to disciple Timothy, and in discipling Timothy, he tells Timothy, go on and disciple others who will disciple others who will train others to accurately handle the word of truth. So we are those who practice faithful growth so we can teach others faithful growth. Paul says, entrust to faithful men what you've heard from me. Paul was not giving to Timothy a list of diatribes and eloquent speeches. He was passing on to Timothy the Word of God. And that that was to be passed on to other people of God, to other people of God, to other people of God. What does Generation Beta need from you? They need you to disciple the next generation with the Word of God. And that starts with your practice of faithful growth in the Word of God. And every day you have opportunity for it. Turn over back to James again because it's important that we return where we had been just a few moments ago. James chapter 1, a faithful discipler will help their disciple learn to be faithful and to put into practice the truth of God's Word. Notice what James says after the text that we have studied already. So we've already read 19 through... 23, but let's pick up 23 through 25. The scripture there says this, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing or blessed in his doing. A faithful discipler will teach their disciple how to look in the mirror and make the necessary corrections. 
at Biblical Ministries Worldwide, where I'm on the board of, I sit on the governance committee of the board, and the job of the governance committee is to help regulate the board itself. So we create the regulations. One of the regulations, one of the ways that we do that is we establish assessments or surveys that we as a board all take to assess our viability as a board member, our functionality as a board, and to assess whether we're growing in Christ as individuals. What a joy to be on a committee where I get to ask the questions, but then what a challenge it is to answer some of the questions that we develop. A discipler is one who will take the disciple and ask the hard questions. What's that under your eyes? How are we going to fix those dark circles? What, what's that that's creating the, the crease, the stress lines? The discipler is one who takes the disciple and shows them how to look into the mirror and to take a sober self-assessment. And to not walk away from the mirror saying, whew, I really look good. But to walk away from the mirror as a hearer who is a doer. And fixes what needs to be fixed. And works on what needs to be worked on. So James is highlighting these great truths for us. Looking into the law of liberty and persevering. And blessed because we have paid attention. Hebrews 5, you can write this down, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Uh, we are also helping those go from the milk of the Word of God to the solid food of the Word of God. We started in our study on how to listen to a message in Hebrews chapter 5 that we are to be growing up, growing up to solid food. A discipler teaches his disciple how to grow into solid food. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, each person is ultimately responsible. Let's turn over there because it's only a book away. 1 Peter 2, 2, the scripture there says this, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. A discipler is careful in helping other disciples follow after the things of the Lord by not giving them meat too early, but by giving them the nutrients that are necessary for them to grow up. You are commanded, believer, you are commanded to grow up. But the discipler in teaching their disciple to study the Word of God and to pursue holiness greatly assists the one who's trying to grow up. There's a lot of questions that have been asked. Why are the younger generations wandering away from the church? And, and we've, we've excused it with uh, symptoms, I believe, symptoms. But I believe that the real reason that the younger generation has walked away from the church is that the older generation refused to disciple the younger generation. They didn't reach into their lives and say, here's some milk, grow. Sure, we taught them how to memorize Scripture. Sure, we taught them how to practice the habits of Christendom. But did you teach them to practice biblical Christianity? Let us be found faithful in our own growth so that we can teach others in their growth as well. Let's continue on. We've got two more to go in just the next few moments. Let us have a proper perspective. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians here. 
as I mentioned earlier, it's way too easy for us to take credit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. I want to start back because it fills in some of where we've been, but notice how Paul struggles with the very thing we just struggled with, how he wrestles with the very thing we just spoke about. 1 Corinthians 3, 2, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Paul understood the balance. He understood the balance of helping Christians grow, and now he's going to call them out as we come into verses 5 through 7. Notice what he says. What then is Apollos, that, what is Paul, servants through whom I, you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It is essential for you and I to understand that the work of discipleship is not your work. You're not the owner of it. You're just the servant in it. It's essential that you have a proper perspective and understanding that discipleship is God's work. There, were not to, there are not to be divisions in the church, but Paul is addressing the divisions that existed in the Corinthian church. Some said they were of Apollo, some said they were of Cephas, some said they were of Christ. Paul says that no matter who you followed, they are all servants who are pointing you to Christ, who are pointing you to godliness, who are pointing you to growth, who are also to have the proper perspective. The church was so divided because there was so much pride in who had ministered to these individuals at the church at Corinth. But Paul says, who are they? It's God who caused the growth. It's God who caused the growth. This presents presents rather an intriguing truth of God's work in us. If it's God who brings the growth, then why does God even use us? And I think the answer to that is because of the blessedness of seeing another believer grow. It is fascinating to watch your children go from one stage to the next. I remember when we were first trying to teach our children to talk. And we did this with every single one of our children, so I'm not going to pick any of them out as several of you look over to my children and see their reactions. It's, it's fascinating when children are, are very little and they can't speak, you plead with them to learn to talk. You try to help them learn to talk. And then after they start talking, you wonder why you did that. Because they won't stop talking, right? But they, as they're talking, you're excited for them talking, and you're like, oh, they're first words! You love to see that growth. And there's something about that and the nurturing of that child to see them go from one stage to the next. And the same is true in the walk of a believer. We do the same thing. It's amazing to watch a a new believer go from those very early days in Christ to beginning to to speak the, the verses that they've learned. And in essence, they move through the stages of physical growth in their spiritual growth. They go from crawling around to walking. They go from coloring on the walls to drawing masterpieces. They're growing in Christ. And it's messy work, but God allows you an inside look into the growth of another believer. Paul doesn't develop it much more than this, but he says that you are God's fellow workers. Notice as we continue on in the text here in 1 Corinthians, uh, 
and we move all the way into verse 9. Let me move into verse 8. It says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You must keep a proper perspective. Do not believe that you are the star of the team when it comes to discipleship. That you are the captain. Discipleship is something you should engage with, with meekness and lowliness. Yearning to see a child in faith grow, but recognizing that it's God who causes the growth. Finally, the last one, prioritize dependency. Turn over to John chapter 17. If you want to learn how to disciple, obviously Christ is the example you want to study. But there's one particular passage. The reason we haven't gone here too much already is there's one particular passage that I wanted us to see, and I don't have time to get through all of it. So I'm going to encourage you to go home and read John 17 sometime this week. It's in the high priestly prayer that we begin to understand the dependency of discipleship even better. Notice what Jesus says, beginning in verses 1 and following of John 17. Jesus says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of, your, out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth and I came, that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. Jesus just recounted his three and a half years of walking with these disciples. His three years of walking with these disciples. In his summation of them, Christ does not give up his dependency on the Father. He's the second member of the Trinity. But he's constantly in submission to the Father. There's much that we could do to work through this passage, but we see, we should see the attitude of humility, meekness, servanthood, all demonstrated by the second person of the Trinity. In verses 6 through 8, we see the dependency of Christ on the Father. Even the disciples of Jesus were concerned about belonging. Jesus was concerned about making sure they understood that they belonged to the Father. And what was the message that he taught them? He didn't teach them how to tie their shoes. He didn't teach them how to live on a day-to-day basis, although that certainly was part of the process, I'm sure. But Jesus taught them dependency on the message of the Father. His focus is on what God wanted them to know. And that's what Jesus was accountable to the Father to teach them as the second person of the Trinity. God himself, united in every way to the Father, one 
three in one. Jesus is dependent on the Father. Ownership of the work of God in the lives of the people of God is for God alone. And if it is for God alone, then the discipler must prioritize dependency on the Lord. If you are to be a faithful discipler, then be one who is diligently dependent on the Lord. I've sat in discipleship meetings, sometimes at a coffee house, sometimes in my home, sometimes in my office, sometimes just randomly on the street. I have stood and sat in discipleship opportunities, listening to the person speak to me and praying diligently the whole time that the Lord would give me the words to speak. May we not lose that kind of dependency. That's what Christ had. We see then how that is demonstrated to the disciple. 1 Thessalonians 1, which we studied, so we're not going to turn there tonight. We've studied it in our study on Sunday morning. But we should look to Paul's example in that letter. As we've continued to study through that, I hope you've begun to understand Paul's constant heart demonstrated a faithful prayer for those that he ministers to nearly every one of his epistles but specifically in 1 Thessalonians. It is important that our prayers, much like Paul's prayers, are informed and intentional, focused on the spiritual growth of their disciple and trusting God to bring the growth. When you've hit a wall in discipleship, do you plead with the Lord for open doors in the life of the disciple? Or do you try another cutting-edge tactic or scheme? There have been volumes of books written on the issue of discipleship. Every generation comes along and they renew the energy and the effort of seeking the, the older generation to disciple them, but they want to be discipled in their terms, and so they write a whole new set of books. And so about every 10 to 15 years, a whole new set of discipleship books come out about how we should be discipled. What's fascinating to me is there's no manual in the sense of Thus you shall do, thus and so. But there are principles that we have just gleaned. It is important that these five principles be true of you. If you are to be a discipler of another generation, be yourself pointed to Christ. Pursue godliness in every way. Holiness, godliness. Practice faithful growth in your own life. Have a proper perspective that it's God who causes the growth. And that proper perspective will lead you to the same kind of dependency we see of Christ in John chapter 17. If the Son was dependent upon the Father, how much more do you need to be dependent on the Father? Let us be found faithful in practicing these five things. And go find the disciple then. Go train somebody else. And these don't have to be perfect. You're not waiting for every element of these to fit exactly right before you go and disciple somebody else. But as you're in the process of discipleship, do not neglect these five. Do not lay them aside and say they're unimportant. As you're discipling another, keep these five in mind so that you yourself will not grow arrogant, will not grow haughty, but will be one who follows diligently after the things of the Lord.
Let's close this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the biblical examples that we have throughout Scripture, such as Barnabas and Saul, who would become Paul, Timothy, who was asked to entrust to others the message that had been given to him. We even see the examples of Silas and John Mark. We see Timothy and Titus, all discipling another generation. Lord, you have commanded us and instructed us that we are to be discipling. This is a command that you've given from Matthew chapter 28. It is not just a passive thing that we can engage with, but it must be an active thing. And I pray that we would do so, that your name would be glorified as we put into practice these five principles we've studied from your word tonight. Lord, discipling is a difficult thing. So I pray that we would go into it with our eyes wide open but that we ourselves would grow in the process and become more and more faithful as we become more meek, more lowly, more humble, that you alone would receive the glory and that generations that are to come, should the Lord tarry, will be trained, discipled, equipped for the work of ministry because of the faithful few who are disciplers in this room. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for all of these things. We ask for those who need to find a disciple, that you would lead them to the right individuals, that you would help them to practice the truths that we have studied tonight, and that they would pour them in to the next generation for your glory and for our good. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that we have studied tonight and the recent weeks as well. And we ask your blessing as we depart from here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.